Welcome to NACSW's Podcast of the Month. Our podcast program makes available recordings of a wide variety of NACSW presentations and discussions on topics of particular interest to Christians in social work. Our Podcast of the Month program features a new podcast every 30 days for your listening pleasure. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Workshop called Assessing Preparing Adopted Families to Care for Traumatized Children. And our presenters today are Jane Fuller and Hope Hollison-Strong. Uh, Jane is a national and international trainer in the field of child welfare. She is the author, co-author of six books, including her newest, Wounded Children, Healing Homes, How Traumatized Children Impact Adoptive and Foster Parents. Jane's work takes her yearly to Ukraine, uh, Kyrgyzstan and Poland, you see pictures of that, I think, today. Um, recently, two of her books have been translated into Russian and Polish. Uh, she's affiliated with the uh, Institute of Human Services in Ohio. And Hope Hoffman-Strong, it serves as the Interim Chair of Social Work, Director of the Master Social Work Program at Milan College, and she is an adopted parent. Why don't we give a warm welcome to Hope well, Hope and I am going to share in this journey together our book, Wounded Children Healing Homes. Um, Hope has uh, two amazing uh, contributions in that chapter. She'll be sharing a little bit about that. Um, I would like to find out kind of where you all are, but just real quickly. I went to a presentation a while ago. It was an hour and a half long, and the presenter spent 30 minutes of time having everybody introduce himself, which means she wasn't prepared for the workshop. Uh, so... Uh, just real quickly, uh, kind of what areas of work do you do? Uh, anybody do adoption home studies? Uh, work with foster or adoptive parents? How many of you do that? What are some other things that you do? But about um, two and a half years ago, three and a half years ago, I started on a, on a book project. And the name of the um, book was, originally was called Embracing Love Like No Other, but the publisher always changes the name. But the book ended, ended up coming out for called Wounded Children Healing Homes. And after that book came out, uh, I began asking myself as a trainer and as an adoptive parent myself and as a former foster parent, what in the world could we do differently for, for families and children um, so our, we're not writing about these stories of families and desperation, these adopted foster families. And so we began a journey that I'm going to share the, the model that we have come up with. And uh, this is kind of what we're going to be talking about in our very brief time, we have an hour and a half. Hope is going to be sharing her story, and I'll let her share all the details. We want to uh, take a real brief um, overview of what trauma is, and if you already know that, just a brief overview. What about parental expectations? Uh, we've got some tools for you, and then you're going to be introduced, if you've not heard about them before, the nine essential skills of trauma informed care, and how at these nine essential skills that are over here on the wall impact every part of child welfare. Uh, whether you're looking at um, the child or the foster parent or the whole system itself. And um, I, I, I believe sometimes we go to training and it's just a training and then nothing else happens. Have you ever been in that? Some of you are just beginning that 
no one does anything with it. It was a great workshop. How was your workshop? Yeah, I learned a lot of that. And then you put your handouts away, and no one talks about it again. So I became acquainted with the National Child Traumatic Stress Networks, Nine Essential Skills of Trauma and Care, and I looked at this and said, could this become a part of everyday language within the agency? That the workers are talking the same language as the foster parents and adoptive parents. And so we created uh, what we call a, our, our trauma-informed assessment preparation and support model. And this is kind of just give you a little bit of idea. I hope, um, what do you call your group? They're at Master Interns. Master mm -hmm. Social Interns. Um, she has a group that has joined me in this process. And what we have done is taken the nine essential elements and put them through the entire system from the moment that a foster parent gets an orientation letter all the way to placement of the child in support. And there are a number of counties. We have 15 counties in Ohio and five other states, agencies in five other states that are embracing this model and running with it. And a particular county, Butler County, is the group that helps interns help with. And this is what we're looking at. If you're not familiar with this, it, the uh, National Child Traumatic Service Network has what they call a trauma toolkit. And it's, two, it's a 12-hour training. And the neat kind of thing of it is, is that it's all free. So if you go on the National Child Traumatic Stress Network site, and I believe, hopefully, I put it on your handouts. If not, I can give you that. I cannot get online here. I would have taken it in. And put in on the search engine trauma toolkit you'll be taken to the toolkit. It is absolutely amazing. It's two days of training that provides the foundation for what we are doing. And at Butler County, everybody in the agency, including the phone receptionist, took the trauma toolkit. Everybody in the agency. So everybody's hearing the same language. And then, um, this is what other, uh, the other counties are doing as well. They are taking a workshop, it's a six-hour workshop, assessing and preparing families to care for traumatized kids. You're going to get a peek at that workshop today. That's, that's what we're talking about today. And just an overview. And following that workshop um, is Building Trauma Company Healing Parents. And we have taken, we have created tools, some of which you're going to get today, for assessing families. And our part two workshop, um, what does support look like? If you're, everybody is looking through that lens of all these nine essential skills. So we can take, we've got a packet of um, support tools. I ask, I probably have asked a thousand foster care and adoption workers, primarily adoption workers, do you do an adopted family care plan once the child is placed? How many would you say, would you, would you think everybody does? Sure. None. No one's even thought about it. Doing an adopted family care plan? Other than people from Bethany Christian Services is the only place where I get that answer. Anybody from Bethany? Here? Anyway, so it's, we have the whole process from the beginning of the orientation of new parents all the way through support and after placement of the child and heading into finalization um, is it, surrounded by these nine essential skills. So we created a family care plan around that. And then our third workshop in this series is called Wounded Children Healing Homes, and I've almost thought to change this title, Wounded Children and Wounded Families, because of the families that I hear in the priesthood and ongoing training with foster and adoptive parents, where they are, and you're going to see a little bit of where they are. And so that's the worker track that we have. Now, I do have a model if you're interested, I can send you the whole model with all this looks like and how it comes together. 
and this is the parent track. And the TIAP is our little, our little creation, trauma-informed assessment preparation. What that means? And we have taken the nine essential skills, and you're going to get that today. You'll see in the packet here in a minute. The nine essential skills, and, in, and brought them clear up to the assessment process, where we our workers are asking behavioral questions around the nine essential skills. And I'm going to be introducing those to you a little bit later. So they not only hear in pre-service, because these little nine essential skills, no matter what pre-service your families are doing, whether they're doing that, some of you may not be familiar with the kind of what we have in this country, there's an app pre-service, another one called PATH, um, and we use Institute for Human Services. No matter what pre-service modules that you train, what program, these are on the wall. Everything you train can be pulled back and hey, we're talking about this essential skill. What we are hearing from trainers is that people are asking far different questions in the training room. They're getting at, at a deeper level of awareness, and that um, our assessors are saying, you know what, I'm getting a whole different interview here in my home study. It's no longer a cookie cutter home study. I'm asking behavioral questions and their understanding of these things, how they related to their own life journey. So it's kind of, we're real excited about what we're hearing. The National Trauma Medicine Network has the sister workshop to the Trauma Toolkit for parents, and that's also free. The resources are there. And then they take becoming a trauma-confident parent, and what that workshop is, it's great to give people why we need it, but you know what, what do our families need more than any other thing other than why? What do they need? How. They need how do I do it. And so this workshop is how do I live these things out every day? How do I know how to do that? And the last one again is our wounded children healing homes. So that is kind of the agenda that we have for our, our, our model that we're using and very, very excited about it. And also what we are doing, and these instruments were created by Cope's group at Wheelock um, College. We are doing a pre and post knowledge of trauma so that workers can hand out um, pre-test knowledge of parents' trauma and after the end of pre-service has that knowledge increased. We have done a great one, which is very, very exciting. Foster parents' perception of competency. What we've done is create a survey. What is their perception of their own competency to do all of these skills over here. And some of the some of the counties, I've, I've got their results back. And say, for example, under one, or excuse me, under three, help the child to understand and manage overwhelming emotions. 70% in one particular county said they felt very confident to be able to help these traumatized children. Now, is that, what do you think about that? This is free service. It's the first day of free service. What do you think? Surprising. They think they do. They don't have a clue. That's the point. <laughs> what do you say? So they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. <laughs> and number and four, help the child understand, modify, overwhelm. 80% said they felt very confident in managing the child's overwhelming behaviors. Now, it's good that a pre-service trainer knows going in, this is what people are thinking. Because they're going to get broadsided like you wouldn't believe when we talk about expectations. And the other thing that we measure is recognizing and understanding expectations. I did not include those surveys as part of your handouts, but um, I think folks got to circulate some uh, email lists if you would like to see what those surveys look like. 
And we're getting um, good results from those, and we're seeing some pre and post trade uh, change. I saw one the other day, uh, I'm trying to remember, like the third or fourth expectation. Um, I will always still love and connection with this child. This is one of the expectations. And I could tell by the way the person checked his on a survey that who it was, and he put um, always true for me on his free trading, and then uh, when he got his post trade, it tells the same person rarely true for me. So he understood, which means he's getting it. He's getting it. Understanding. Now, <clears throat> what we're looking at at our relevant family project. We've kind of measured this stuff for years, but I'm not from this perspective. We are looking uh, not only at um, um, placement stability for the kid and uh, personal satisfaction, but foster parent retention. National statistics tell us that we lose 50% of every brand new pre-service class within the first year placement. That's national statistics. Why do you think that is? Would you say? But it's hard. It's hard. And it's the hardest thing you've ever expected. Yes, lack of support. Lack of support. Lack of support. There are three major reasons. Lack of respect and positive regard. Two, lack of support. And three, lack of relevant training that gives them the real how-to. I don't know if you've ever been to a training where they tell you uh, the first five hours of the six-hour training is here's the problem, and we have 15 minutes left to tell you, or whatever. And that's not what our families need. Now, I'm real excited about Hope sharing her story today because she has lived it, and she's going to share, and then we are going to go over our, our model. So, Hope. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. It's wonderful to have you here. I am going to share uh, my and our story, um, as Jane has uh, shared. You'll see a few more grand years than you see there. That has something to do with the story. <laughs> um, but it, it's really my honor to share with you today. Um, you might have noticed that there's a, a video in the room, and because of that, I've actually chosen not to share the names of my children just for a little bit of privacy for their sake. Um, and so I may stumble from time to time by saying my older son, my younger son, but that's not usually how I talk about them, but you'll bear with me if that's sort of how the story comes out. I thought it might be helpful to start um, at the beginning of uh, my husband and I's story. My husband's name is Jay. We met in college. We went to Stanford University in Bloomington, Alabama. And uh, we're dating while we were students there and graduating and all of that. And we're very young um, to be together and to be married at that time. And even at that young age, though, we were, as is often the case when people are um, becoming seriously dating and getting engaged, people talk to you about family and having kids and what that's going to be like. And from the very beginning, we talked about having adoption as a part of a way to build our family. And I think the way, um, actually neither of us had known people. I had known two children as I was growing up who were adopted. But that's all that I knew of that I knew people who were adopted. And my husband wasn't on their inside. Um, but where I had really come to that, and I was sort of leading that initial idea that Jay very, very quickly um, jumped right into it, was um, in my studies, I was a volunteer probation officer in the University of Birmingham. And I was studying psychology and sociology and religion as a minor, and I thought I was, I was preparing to be um, a, a therapist. Um, and the way I was being prepared to do that was very clinically based, diagnosed, treating individual people kind of thing. And as I sat for hours and hours in the afternoons, um, 
with these young men who had been incarcerated and were now on probation, and I was trying to help them navigate as teenagers, um, sort of meeting their requirements and trying to help support them and their journey. Um, I found, as I would drive back to Stanford's campus from inner city Birmingham, I would meet almost the only parents. How is it that the work I'm being prepared to do right now in my psychology classes are really going to prepare me to help create change for these individual I knew the families that they, I knew some about the families they were in, most of them were kids of color. I knew about societal issues that they lived in. And it really, really changed my heart and transformed my understanding about, about change and what can really happen with people. And it was really burdened um, for me that there are so many people in our society here in America who need families that are forever who can provide care and love, safety, and and so early, early on, I was just really, really burdened by that and inspired um, to, to be one of those moms. And, and Jay was as well. We got married. Um, we started our life journey together and really tried to follow God's guidance for us as we did education and did all new jobs and moved around the country for various things and kept feeling like it wasn't time for family yet. It wasn't quite time. It wasn't quite our time yet. Um, and all the while, we had been talking very openly with our friends and family about this and actually found um, from my husband's family that there wasn't a whole lot of support or understanding about adoption. And it was eight years after we'd been married that one time on vacation, I was walking down the beach with my in-laws and my um, mother-in-law reached over and grabbed my hand and she said, Oh, Hopi, I've been meaning to tell you. We wanted to tell you it's fine if you and Jay want to adopt. After you have a little toe-headed little boy just like Jay and a little curly-haired little girl like you, that would be great if you could do that. And it was a gift to us on one hand. And on the other, it really reminded us, wow, we are so comfortable with this. And there are other people who are so intimately involved in our lives and ours. And um, so we just continued on that journey. A couple years later, Jay and I both really felt like now is the time for us to start our family. We were so excited. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to get pregnant, if we were going to go towards adoption. And I was diagnosed with a rare kind of cancer, um, which meant that um, I had to have a hysterectomy and some other things, which very much answered that question about how we were going to have family. Um, and so once we sort of um, came to from all of that kind of whirlwind that we went through together, they came to God and the Justice to Boston, and literally were seven miles down the road from the woman who in the world was the leading researcher on that kind of cancer. And I was able to receive care um, and as you see, healthy. <laughs> 13 years later. Um, and so then, again, as we get our feet on the ground, we realized that all these years we've been talking about adoption, I have said we were going to do state adoption, and Jay has said we were going to do international adoption. This is 14 years into this conversation, and how is that helpful? <laughs> but we, anyway, we made our way, and uh, we went to an amazing organization who had information about all different kinds of adoption, processes, procedures, costs, timelines, all of that, and to my husband's credit, he heard them say that there were over 4,000 kids that very July night in the state of Massachusetts free for adoption who did not have forever families on their path. And he didn't hear anything else for the next two hours because he was so burdened by that and thought, how can I even be looking beyond? And for us, that was the right choice for us. So we started down that path um, that fall of 2000. And, um, 
we ended up uh, meeting for the first time the two boys who were um, individually become forever family with their biological brothers. Uh, they were three and four at the time. They came into care in the state of Massachusetts and foster care with one other younger brother. They were three, almost two, and almost one. Um, their mom had saved them by taking them to a police station and asking for help and saying that she could not keep them safe. Um, and that was a safe place to do that in our state. Um, there are designated places where parents can um, bring children and turn them over to the care of the state and not have legal implications for them. So um, in that generous, loving moment, she saved their lives. And they were in care, but the state did not have any idea what to do with these boys. The oldest one being the only one who was little, the younger two were not. Um, and you can imagine the older one who had been really caring for them and protecting them for a very long time wasn't about to tell anything about what had been going on. He was very courageous, he was the protector, um, the caregiver, and so the state spent all of their time trying to figure out who are these boys, what do they need, what can we do for them, and trying to find a family, a forever family, who could take all three of these children and put them to the first um, in the end, they found two families, uh, my family, who was able to adopt the older two, um, and then another family who was able to adopt the oldest. And they were looking for a family to keep them not just connected, but truly brothers. And um, that was a gift to us because of all the five different places across the country, we Jay and I have always sought to create community for ourselves. And this was just a gift. Now we have family. In the, in the city of Boston, um, the littlest brother and his family, and then as our boys were transitioning into our home, we found that the mom had another child who was taken at birth due to being uh, born addicted to drugs, and it was placed in another home. And so there's four brothers, and they're all very, very thankful, and we're dearly connected. I'm so grateful. They're 13 and 14 now. Um, so that's how we got here, but some of what that story was like. Um, so. We find out about these two boys, three or four. Uh, they've been in foster care for a little bit over a year. And um, we go to the very first meeting um, at uh, DFS, which was the Department of Social Services in Massachusetts at the time, got these little black and white photos of these boys. Um, a couple included their younger brother, because the social worker did such a great job bringing them together every month to play together. So that, and particularly my oldest, who was so identified, and he needed that to be able to lay his eyes on this youngest brother and see himself felt so incredibly responsible for. Um, so we have these pictures, and we were given a week to um, talk to the foster mom to explore, see what we could find out, and then come back and say, yes, we think we want to move on and find out more about these boys and see about becoming a forever family. And in my phone conversation with the foster mom, who was this amazing woman, um, she shared with us. Uh, I asked her, so what do you say when they ask about the biological mom and the biological dad? And she talks to them and she said, well, they don't ask. And I said, really? They've never asked? And she said, oh, well, they used to ask. They've been living there a little over a year by now. And so my youngest son, he was 30 at the time, he's been living there almost half his life. Um, she said, no, they asked a lot at the beginning, but I never answered them because I didn't know what to say. And my heart just broke a little bit more. And then when I spoke with the social worker, I found out that the boys had never been told that the foster mom was temporary, or that the social worker was looking for a family. And so thankfully, as a social worker, I had a sense that, oh no, oh no. <laughs> they, the state had a 10-day transition plan 
from the day we were going to meet these two girls to the day they were going to move into our home forever and potentially never have any connection with that foster family again. And um, thankfully, I asked them that question and pushed back enough, and they had a connection of a contract with a woman named Joyce McGuire Paper, who may be familiar with it, he's done in the adoption work, um, sort of a guru in the adoption field, who um, had an organization that was very recently called the Center for Family Connection. And everything is about the connection, because so much about adoption for all people involved in adoption is about separation and loss and, and guilt between people and her philosophy was know as much as we have control over everything we need to create connections and maintain connections. So she shifted what was a 10-day transition into a 10-week transition after over a month of intensive work of the social worker who was in the early care and education side of the police, talking with them at age-appropriate three- and four-year-old understanding of who, who and where their biological mom and dad were and where this foster mom was and the social worker and what roles they've been playing all this time. And then they've been looking for forever families and only in that last fourth week installment of their story where we introduced to them in our little life books that we were, or our little books of ourselves that we're giving to them that introduced us as family and our dog and our home and our extended family, our church community. And only then were we ever allowed to meet them in person. But prior to that, um, some of the most vivid um, experiences I have with our boys was the day we actually got to go to Capitol Square and early to an education site. They went on a bus every morning and dropped them off at 7.30 in the morning, picked them back up at 5.30 in the morning, a three and four-year-old And the bus driver didn't love them. He had a special place in his heart for them. And he always made sure they got on the bus safely and got off the bus safely. Um, but my older son would walk his little brother to the two-year-old classroom, and he'd help him get his lunchbox away and all of his stuff away, and he'd take him into the classroom and sit him down at the table, because they started there. This site in inner city Boston, most of the contracts fought in this site were for kids in foster care, and a lot, a lot of kids in poverty, and kids of color, always a transition about and uh, he would get him settled at that table, sometimes sit with him a little bit before he'd go on to his class as a four-year-old. Um, so we got to go in with the social worker. We just looked like any kind of prospective parent, maybe bringing their kids there, no one knew, you know, people were there observing these two little boys that were the social worker. And we walk in and we stand around, and he's the only one sitting at the breakfast table with a teacher. Everybody else is at circle time, wiggling all over the floor, laughing, singing. A couple of other teachers over there trying to keep the kids doing what they're supposed to do. And our youngest now was sitting there on his fourth pole of Syria. And finally, he was able to transition over there and sat in this woman's lap, very much um, connected to her, very much um, you know, wrapped around her body for the little bit of circle time he was able to manage. And then after we sat there for a little bit, um, the social worker took us to the four-year-old classroom, and we go in and we're squatting down, trying not to interrupt there during the circle time, and we don't see them. And we have these pictures, we have them emblazed in our minds and in our hearts from what we've been seeing, and we can't find them. My heart's beating, Jay's heart's beating quickly, and we look over at the social worker, and she points at that. And sure enough, all the way over the far side of the room, there is this little bit of movement way under the final table. 
and over the course of the next seven or eight minutes, he makes his way tentatively under one table, next to the next table, under the next table, and finally, as they moved from, good morning, everybody, how do you do? We hope you're feeling happy and not sad and blue. They moved from that and some other little things and kids checking in. So our oldest son was laying over the nap mat, leaning in over and doing the motion to the kindergarten rat. He was mouthing the words with no sound. I think it's authors. And as soon as they discussed the circle, he tore back to other that table. And that was the end for me and Jay. There was no hope for us <laughs> not going down this path Because <laughs> we just thought, how on earth can we say no? to these boys. Um, and so that was our first glimpse into their lives, into what they might have experienced, um, and how they might carry that as early, early, early little boys, ages three and four. Um, ten years later, I have a whole lot of stories to share, but what I'm going to do is try to thematically just show a few different things, because the kinds of things that Jane is going to walk us through the rest of the day are, are beautiful concepts that help touch back and really can deeply transform the way parents and families experience the kinds of things that we have experienced and are experiencing. Um, one of the things we learned early on is about body memories. Remember how we said our older son was the only one who was verbal when they came into care? Our other son wasn't, and that means um, that he did not have verbal language at that time. So that even if he has memories of those first almost two years of his life, he cannot connect words to them in order to express them, even now as a 13 year old boy. Um, and it also means that there's a lot of things related to trauma or abuse or neglect kind of things that place themselves out in if you have a certain smell or hear a certain noise or see something that just sort of triggers fear or some kind of um, earlier life experience. But neither of our boys would know how to say, oh, that reminds me of, or oh, I'm upset because. And it's even, you know, even now, as, as teenagers, they have great deal you know, more maturity and, and emotional kind of language to use. They're not able to connect with that. And there's, as parents, it's really hard to deal with that because that means things can go awry anywhere, anytime, with very little explanation of that. And that's really hard to manage and hard to deal with. It took me three years to make the connection between July and the behavior that I saw every year. The boys' behavior, but particularly my youngest, just went off the charts, being out of control, reactive, crying, um, tantrums for early through mid-July. I could not figure it out. You know, it's fun. It's the fourth of July. It's fireworks. It's parties. It's gathering with friends and family. And then mid-July is his birthday. That's all great. And then one day, I was reviewing a bunch of information we had, and I saw that they were abandoned from July 7th. Now, they didn't even know the months of the year when they were almost two and three. They didn't know that, but they knew, especially my youngest, knew. When he started seeing firecrackers, when he started hearing them, when all of those things happened every single year, it deeply draws all of those um, fears, the instability, the loss, all of those things that are unexplainable. And he, he can't talk about that, but we live it every single year. And that's one I've been able to figure out. There's lots that we haven't. Um, other things, um, 
because the boys have deep, deep neglect issues, um, there's a lot of the brain um, research that's been done, probably aware of, over the last few years is really showing the incredible connections of neglect and the implications for development early on and then beyond, and not just have huge impacts on people's ability to develop and learn that kind of thing over their lives. And certainly our boys, especially our youngest, have experienced a lot of implications of that. But another is hoarding. Hoarding what looks like absolutely useless things, the one that just still makes me laugh, or sometimes I didn't laugh, um, is that in stores still today, if we're walking through a parking lot, you know those little inserts and magazines that are just little postcards advertising other things? You would think they were jewels as many as we have had sort of in our house. And we get stuck in if they get lost or recycled or wet, you would think that in the world has occurred. Just, just attachments of meaning more and more and more and more of things that seem just useless, you know, to other people. And certainly at a much more deeply obvious level hoarding of food. And really, really needing that often and finding all kinds of stashes of food and under beds in places where it's just not needed, we, we work really, really hard to show that we have an abundance of food and it's available anywhere, anytime. We never go anywhere without extra food because it's just a constant trigger um, for both of them, but again, especially for our um, Both were very terrified of loud noises and sudden movements. I remember in our tiny little living room, probably about a year into our shared life together, my husband had just come home from a trip. He traveled a lot those first few years, and he was in his you know, grown um, up man in his suits, and he comes in, and the boys and our dog are all over him, and, and then he starts to take off his suit coat, and then, you know, pretty soon after he's taken off his shoes, he takes off his belt. And he just does a very normal kind of thing like this, and both of our sons dive across the room with their hands over their head. And it just happened to be the first time that they'd ever been with Jay when he took his belt off with that immediate, just innate kind of protect yourself was there. Um, and we've seen many kinds of um, things like that, and we've had to work so hard with them to just help them understand how safe they are here and to try to, as much as possible not to set them up to be afraid. But in the world, we can't protect them from all of those moments that are going to happen. Um, a couple of other things. Uh, just also a great deal of fear of um, uh, darkness, uh, going to the back laundry rooms in the basement and going down there to take the clothes to sort or to bring them to the or anything. And thank goodness for Veggie Tales, there's this great song about God is bigger than the solution. Yeah, so you know, bigger than God's will or And we would sing that over and over. We would just find these beautiful kinds of scripture verses or things like this that we could just embed deeply in our lives just on any given moment that we would just call out and try to protect them kind of things that they Heart. Um, and then our youngest has really struggled so much with this deep, innate sense of being real and being bad, just being invisible or, or being wrong, just not, it's a lot of shame, just not being a creature that's worth anything. And it is so heartbreaking to share a life with a kid who moves in the world that way. And uh, even at, at 13, Continues, but as a little boy, to see him in hypervigilance in his pre K class, in his K1, his kindergarten, his first grade classes, and after school programs, to constantly be so hypervigilant, watching everybody else comparing himself endlessly with an assumption, even starting an assumption that I'm bad, 
and little and worse. Um, they're watching me and they know it. You know, they know all that. And um, there's a lot of behaviors, as you can imagine, that play out of that. Um, it's a hard, hard thing um, to watch on a daily basis and to try to provide the support and the care and the stability that allows him to grow and to really connect with us and connect with others. Um, just a couple more things. Um, we found that thanks be to God, they had developed some incredible survival skills in those early years, and then even within that foster family, a phenomenal foster family. Um, but a pretty chaotic kind of life situation here as well. And um, the two major um, survival skills that they developed, one each, our older son, right, I mentioned before, was really parentified. He was someone who had taken on the role of caring for, protecting, um, anticipating needs of his two big brothers that he had in that home with him. And when they came to live with us, that didn't just go away. Most all he'd known from the moment he was born was the, the, the need to do for himself and for his brothers. And so here we are, becoming a forever family. Um, you know, Jay and I are here to love you, to support you, to, to bring this place, all of these predictable routines, um, you know, love, laughter, all the food you need or want, and all these other things, family, community, church, a darling dog they fell in love with, basically. Um, and our poor old son just could not get, allow himself to release that space. And our biggest prayer for him was that he could be a child, that he could be four years old, that he could be five years old, that he could be six years old now, that he could be 14 years old and be free to be a ridiculous, silly, out of control teenager and not feel like he has to be a responsible person. So what we had to do, we learned very early on follow therapeutic supports working with us, and we couldn't just say, don't do that, don't do that, don't get between us and your little brother when he's having a terrible night terror and we need to help comprehend him. We need to be able to do that. We couldn't just keep telling him, don't. We had to equip him with what you can do as an older brother. How you can be an older brother to be there and help him tie his shoe and help him do those things. But, but to have that responsibility is the thing that has taken a decade to even really make a whole lot of shift in. Um, and, but that was a protective mechanism, that was a survival mechanism for them. So thank God that he developed that. Um, the one that our younger son developed the most was, it sounded really negative, but it was manipulation. This darling little, precious, beautiful little boy with a face and eyes and a wealth in the heart. And he knew that. <laughs> and he could get most anything he wanted, particularly from the women in his life, his foster mom, his foster grandmother, the teachers in his school, the, the headmaster and secretary in his school. But he got his needs met. And as that played out, as he got older with friends, and even we went back the other day, I was looking at through um, when our, our adoption day, which was a year and a half after they had moved in with us. They missed the day of school in order for us to go to court for the Forever Family Adoption Day and all of that. And when they went back to school the following day, their classes, our younger one was in a K-1 preschool class still, and our older one was in kindergarten. Um, their classes and the teachers had had the kids do activities the day before to present to them the following day to congratulate them on the Forever Family. And one of the ones that one of his friends wrote was, 
I forgive you for always hurting me. And so, um, you know, it's sort of like, oh, that means he's hurting people, which was happening. But the fact that it was just this beautiful thing that he sort of forgave him. And, um, but you know what we found with a lot of his friends, he would get what he needed, he would use people and then move on. And so we've done a lot of work with them on being able to connect and connect with faith, um, which is so important. Um, and then I think the final thing I would say is um, throughout all of the time, we are fortunate beyond belief um, to have a church community and family. In I asked, we have to say this, I know I shared a little bit earlier about some of our family that wasn't really sure that this was a great family plan for us. And let's just say that our family throughout um, has been absolutely extraordinary. And once a child's faith arrives and then that person arrives, changes just everything in their hearts very much open to accepting these ways and supporting all of us in this process and loving us deeply. Um, we are very, very fortunate in Boston to be surrounded by all kinds of supports for people um, who are cancer diagnosed with PTSD with reactive attachment disorder and our older one with often Asperger's syndrome. Um, a whole variety of things. I think some of that is accurate ADHD. I'm not sure all of it is. But what it does is it, it provides the glimpses into ways to support them and help them um, to create environments and family that really will help them thrive as much as possible. Um, but I realize that lots of people across the country do not have this kind of support. And um, we, there were two years, about five years ago, that we were a part of a parenting support group that was co-sponsored by a couple different organizations. And as we drove there, there were parents raising kids with PTSD or reactive attachment disorder. And the kids were supposed to come too. We had dinner and then the kids went away and were taken care of by these trained experts. And then the parents stayed and had an incredible um, parenting support group. Um, it was quite extraordinary. Two years And as we drove there, the first night I realized these folks who were caring for these children have to be more skilled than the folks we need to support group for the parents because they are spending those two hours with these kids. And we were all foster and foster parents. And um, I'm just so grateful to all the folks who supported us. Um, and to Jane and to Jane and to your who shared our own adoption stories and all this I need to know how to do this. That that feeling good 
is it going to last forever? And so it's a move. And that, that terminology comes from Bill Hancock, who is the director of Faith Bridges Foster Care in Atlanta, Georgia. And a lot of what we are training in, we have written curriculum around all that you're having today in the model. And we've had the privilege now of writing this curriculum and throughout it with Bill's um, uh, project that he's working on, and Jane's part of that project, we are filling it with spiritual transformation things for cross-adopted families and social workers, Christian social workers. So this is not something we do without the help of God in all of this. And I, and I see that. But this terminology, this terminology that the workers in Ohio that are now, they first walk into a foster home, say you're a brand new foster parent, and I walk into your home and introduce myself, talk a little bit about it, and then I, then I say to you, you know what this journey is going to be? You're going to become a trauma competent healing parent. But what do you think the response is? Is that Elizabeth? What do you think this response is? Either what are you talking about, or aren't I already? Aren't I already? Or I'm not, I didn't sign up for this, and they're out the door. The continuum is, is everywhere when we think about that. But how important is it that we drop seeds of awareness in the very beginning instead of having to find it out later? Now, I've had uh, social workers that are also adopted parents in workshops, and, and one woman said, the, um, I see the word trauma as a social worker, but as a parent, I see the word healing. And I think we have to help our parents know that they are going to, and it's a journey, it's not something, it's a lifelong journey. You're still going to be doing it when those boys are 25, 35. Our, our son, we adopted um, at the age of 16. We were foster parents, yes, and we adopted when he was 16. He's now 45. Can you explain that to your 40th high school reunion? That you have a 45-year-old son, it just doesn't quite compute here. <laughs> but um, anyway, we're still dealing with issues of his own life trauma. I wish we would have known these things. So when we look at what a trauma-competent healing parent is, and we introduce this during the home study, families hear this, they hear it at pre-service, it becomes part of an ongoing conversation that we have with them. And uh, who is aware of his own personal history and how that may impact them? One of the areas that we're going to explore hopefully um, when we get this project done, uh, sooner than later, is adult attachment what our families are bringing to adoption. Uh, they've done work for, many of you probably have heard of Dr. Karen Purvis at the Institute for Child Development. And in their research, they indicated that foster parents score two to three times higher in avoided attachment style than they, I should say, the regular, the normal population, or the normal, the regular population, not the normal population, but the regular population. Which means we have a lot of foster parents and adopted parents coming to do what? What are they coming to do? Say it again, Jane. Take care of their own needs. And it's not that we we can't rule everybody out that has avoided attachment, but I need to understand what I'm coming with. Um, another part of this is understand the life-altering impact of trauma. One of the things that we have learned in the last number of years is, and they've changed the definition of PTSD to a large part to the term com um, <coughs> complex developmental trauma. And many of you, how many of you have heard that term in your school, right? Things like that. It's a relatively new term that is just slowly making its way into child welfare. And basically, it means that a child's early life is started early, even pre birth 
The traumatic experiences of abuse and neglect. The neglect is far more severe than abuse. That it's chronic, it is ongoing, it interjects itself in developmental stages of a child, which is what you guys had. Um, that is always a form of maltreatment, and it involves the failure of the caregiver. And when we have that whole definition of complex developmental trauma and help our parents understand, this is a life altering impact. Very Okay, now, the three young ladies I gave glasses to, so would you mind Hannah coming up, and Allison, and Hope. Put the glasses on. Now, would you tell us, please, let me put so I don't mind you any further than those glasses, if you don't mind me. Would you tell us what the world looks like to you? I see nothing but two bright lights. Everything is fuzzy. Probably pretty blurry. Do you think potentially because your boys have been through what they've been through, that's the world looks like that to them? Potentially pretty fuzzy? Okay. Um, there's a lot of like black dots that I'm missing. Like I can't see. I can look at the other people. Could it be that she's had a life of a severe abuse? And the life just the world doesn't feel really skewed to her. Life doesn't look the same to her. Mine's really narrow. I can only see directly right here, and I can't see anywhere over here, under here, anywhere else. And I'm going to keep, because I have experienced life to be so unsafe, I'm going to keep myself on a straight narrow so I can be safe. And that's what I have vision I'm constantly just watching forward to make sure nothing happens. So, you know, when we look at the fact that what we have to do as trauma-competent human parents is to view the life from the lens of the wounded child. Thank you guys very much for everything. These have been worn by work all over the world. Ukraine, Kurdistan, I'm surprised you even made of that. Um, another one, and I asked Foster and Adopted Parents uh, when do they learn that about this one? What do you think the answer? I can have to parent differently. What do you think the answer? They don't believe it. And what are they thinking? About everything I've done, and then we'll look at the expectations you have to tackle here in just a minute. They believe they could, the way they parented other by their biological children is going to work for them. And unless families get this, they're in for a, a ride, so to speak. It's going to be extremely difficult. Unless they get that, they're going to have to care differently. Now, when you have families just beginning the process, they still have all their consciously competent mindset. That they believe that, you know, they feel good about this and they're going to be able to do this. That we drop seeds of awareness in a different way than we've ever dropped them in before. What if you heard this at pre-service training? When we heard some of it, um, but nowhere near enough. Nowhere near enough. And I help, I think helping people train that I need to become a trauma company here and here, I hear that from the very beginning, begins to change. Prepare, prepares for transformation and the challenges. And the last one, who knows when they ask for help? Why do you think for many of our faith-based foster and adoptive families, this is a big problem? And I hear it all the time. Why is this a problem? God called me to do this, and it's going to be just fine. Well, the problem is we need to ask for help. And if I ask for help, it may be, uh, I may be appearing to be failing to mission. 
So I better not expose myself to, to this. So it's really important that we look at it. And this is the trajectory when we think about this for parents in the very beginning. They need to become trauma aware that we are dropping these seeds through our free service training with this overlay over it. They're hearing it, they're hearing it, and as they journey through the process, that they become more trauma-informed, that they learn about the deep impact of lifelong trauma on our kids. And, again, the journey continues. Competency means that I'm able to apply the skill that I've known. And that's what it's going to take us all as we learn better how to connect with our kids, how to deal with their kids. And I'm going to show you just a real quick little video here, and then we're going to go through the packet and some of the other information about that. This is a little video that I'd like to share with you and about, it's called The Door.
definitely a journey. You said I heard definitely a journey. Absolutely. What else? Called and there was a mom that came up to me at the um, 
during the uh, workshop at the break, and she said, I have been a successful parent of three biological children, but the little girl I'm getting ready to adopt who is 11 has destroyed all sense of competency I have as a parent. And I asked, you know what, we need to go out and watch. Because you're talking about finalizing this adoption in 30 days? She was in no emotional place to be doing that. So we talked a lot about this. And this is another one. Our children will raise this new child as a sibling. We tell the biological children at home, you know what, this is going to be a forever slumber party, Allison. When is the forever slumber party over? When the what? Day two. Day two. I had a guy that said, I can make that within 17 hours. He said, I put the children to bed. My biological son got up in the middle of the night, came in our bed, and woke me up and said, when is he leaving? 17 hours, the summer party is over. These next two are really critical. And Hope probably doesn't know what this feels like because you've had such incredible support around you. But one of the biggest things I hear from families and the expectation is they expected their family and friends to come around them and support them. And it doesn't happen in a, in a lot of cases. And the biggest word, if I had a flip chart paper here, I would write isolation on it. Because you ask your families, how have your family, how have your relationships with your family and friends changed since you began to parent these kids, these foster kids? And names, you know what? My one woman said, my father said, come on over if you want to, but if you bring the kids, please don't stay very long. I had another woman that was kicked out of the very support group she started. Now, we need support groups of people that are kicked out of their own support groups. They start. But anyway, um, she started a support group. It was in Dayton, and, and a number of years ago, and uh, she uh, stepped out of leadership. So she was out of leadership for about a year or so. She had a little boy that she adopted from Guatemala with severe behavior problems. She said, I got that piece. But she said, one night I went to the support group meeting, and as I was leaving, they came, one of the, the people came over to me, and she said, I think it's, it's, not a, it's a good thing that you don't come back. And what problem line was, the child care provider and the support group said, it's either him or me, because I'm not going to handle them anymore. So she was kicked out of the only support. She was a single mom in Dayton, no family, that support group was her family, and she was asking them to come back. So what do you do with that? So, so going over... These ex expectations um, is really important. On the um, Lubbock County survey, uh, I think it was the 80s, so I will never see, have, feel any regrets or business and adopting you. So that's true. What do you think, Elizabeth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the first morning that, well, maybe no, it's the first day after work they don't want to go home and they take a longer way from home. But the reality is, these are 10 common expectations that you're going to have families with who are consciously compassionate. You're going to present them these things and what are they going to say? Oh, this isn't me. I'm not going to do this. But you know what? You've dropped seeds of awareness in. You've opened the conversation. And what we're doing in our trauma model here with our counties, they're doing this during a home study. And then the support workers are coming back in a month after placement and saying, let's go over that new expectation. Let's have a conversation. It's better to do this than um, walk into a family on, a first, on your first visit and what do we say? How are things? And they say, fine, because we've had no plan for our home visits. 
we don't do anything other than we check on the child, we're really child focused, we realize that this child's going to have permanency, we're going to have to support the family. Very, very important. So this is the first tool in your packet there, and I'm going to share some really interesting research. Now, this may or may not be something you want to put up with pre-service. I don't know. If you're looking ahead, by the way, don't look ahead. I want you to be surprised at some of this. Okay, so put your PowerPoint. Don't look in front. Don't. Can't even charge to see if anybody peeks. Okay. This was done by Heather Ford. Um, she's written a book, Beyond Consequences. And she, this is a small research study, but I hear anecdotally all over the country that these are adopting mothers only, parenting kids with a history of complex trauma. 67% um, uh, reported neural issues. And Hannah, who is doing the post adoption stuff? Who, who do we talk about as doing post adoption? When we, yes, yes. 85% of families are saying there's no post adoption support. I mean, these moms are saying it. 51% um, said they now have financial stress. Talk about unmet expectations. We didn't expect this. 77% of these adopted moms report living in rage. Why the rage? Why do you think rage? Another expectation. It goes back to that. I didn't. They're, they're frustrated because everything they know, they thought they knew how to do isn't working. We never told them exactly what they need to do. Um, Parenting a child with a history of trauma is a far different connection as a parent than it is biological parenting. And um, I hear this anecdotally all over the country. In fact, I asked foster parents, uh, when I do a training with foster parents, I said, tell, or adopted parents, excuse me, tell me one thing you wish you would have known. And more than once I've had someone say, I wish I would have known I would have gotten so angry. You know, and when you say that, if people say, judging me because I fail in the mission here. Our Christian adopted parents get angry, but they don't tell anybody. I think that they also can say, God won't give me anything I can't handle. But really then angry not only at yourself but at God. It plays all the way out because it's a belief system. How I believe impacts my emotions. You know, as what the scripture says, as a man thinks, as I think, impacts my emotion and my behavior. And so if I believe that God will not give me any more than I can handle, but if this is God's fault, I mean, it works out. How about this one? 50% I now on am that pressing meds that went on on. And 93% said they felt like running away. And I said the other 7% are lying or ran away. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? And when I share this, I see such a relief with families because you know what? I can remember their times when we were foster parents and as an adopted parent. I would take the longest way home from work because I didn't want to face work, and I bet you have too. We have the other adopted parents who say I took the longest way home from work. Not from work, but just the longest line in the grocery store. Take a long. So you relate to it, yeah? Absolutely. You want the new checker? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And here we go. 77% isolated. And this is the one that people go, oh my goodness. 14% of these adopted moms in this one particular study were so depressed and so discouraged and so trapped, they thought the only way out was suicide. Now, again, you probably don't want this ever pre service that 14% of you will consider suicide after you get your adoption license. 
it's probably not going to work. Not going to be critical. Now, what is also interesting, and this is it's good to pay attention to when we look at, at the whole assessment piece, we had a conference um, a year ago in Dayton. Faith-based, first faith-based adoption conference. That's hard to say fast. Faith-based adoption conference in um, Ohio, in Dayton. We had 240 at our first conference. We're excited about it. From three states. My husband did a workshop for the men along with another adoptive dad. And he walked out. There were 60 some men in that workshop for the men. And my husband walked out and said, the men talked. Why did the men talk? There were no women. That's exactly right. His wife was there. But they asked him three questions. Now, this is not a scientific, you know, working out all that you need to work out research, but this is the, what the men told the group that day. Answer these three questions. Does your wife seem to be struggling more than you in the relationship with your children? 48% said yes. Now, keep in mind what I just shared to you. To keep in mind the expectations that we talked about. Are you purposeful in spending quality time with your wife to work through the issues that your children are facing? Uh, 54% said no, and another 11% said something wrong. So 65% of the women are generally doing what? Carrying the emotional load in the household. No wonder she's depressed. She's isolated. Her friends don't ask her out to lunch anymore because they don't want to have to deal with Johnny at um, McDonald's anymore. They, you know, one woman told me, she told her Bible study group, this was at the um, Michigan, she was me like three weeks ago. She said, I made the mistake of telling one of the women in my Bible study group that the children, the little girls I was getting, who were three and four, had been sexually abused. She said, the next Bible study group, they said to her, we're real excited about your adoption that's coming up, that you're going to get these girls. We're real excited about that. And you're, we want you to come back to Bible study, but if you put them in child here, you need to stay with them. So what's the point of coming to Bible study? You can't do it. And so... You need to tell your family, you already know this, be really careful about what you share. I tell families you don't have to tell anybody about your child's history. You only need to tell school teachers and other people what they need. What did, you don't go and tell them your children's history. This is what I'll call Johnny. <laughs> Johnny needs. This is what Johnny needs, not what happened to him. Because what happens particularly in schools? Teachers lounge and said, any, is it Marty? Is it Marty? Margie, what happens when you get to Margie? Absolutely. And people talk about them. So it's real important that we uh, think, about, think about that. Are you purposeful in spending one-on-one time with each of your children? 75% of these Christian dads said no. Now, that's important when you're doing assessment on families. I would want to know, when you have issues in the family, what does the resolution of that look like? Don't ever ask for a home study how you handle stress. Please don't ask that question. That is like, how do you handle stress? So, be chocolate, right? Okay. When that's what I'm saying, she's checking. But this is really critical. And one adopted dad said, well, I don't have time. And another adopted dad said, well, you ever go to Walmart? Take a kid. That's one on one time. We need to start reframing this. So here we've got moms carrying a heavy load here dads down to here. Did they expect it to be this way? So that's why we are dropping these teeth in from the very beginning of the preparation. Any comment or question here? Now, this is the next one. 
that is really um, important, and that is the next tool. And this has to do with helping families in the very beginning identify their circle of support, which should be helpful to them, because a lot of times, who does a home study? Okay. Okay, Margie. What question do you ask around support on the home study? Who's going to be your support? And what do they generally say? My family. And we write, their family said they're going to be your support and go on to the next question. And I'm saying we stop, stop right there and we introduce this next school that I'm talking about. There was a worker at a uh, treatment facility in Springfield, Ohio, who she was also an uh, adoptive mom, foster, and then she had adopted a foster kid. And she said, she learned a very valuable lesson. <clears throat> she said that when I was fostering these girls, my parents were my support system. She was, again, a single mom. So when I was having a bad day with my girls, I would call my mom or call my dad and dump all over them, whining and da 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 but she said, you know what? The honest thing, I've adopted these girls now, and they act like they don't want to be grandparents of these kids. They never ask them, why do you think that is? Yeah, why would I want to cuddle up to a kid that swears to be doing that? I mean, really. So I began to ask myself, what do we need to do different in a home study to begin dropping seeds of awareness here? And that is, we need to ask our family that question is going to be your support. And they say family, and then I would throw out, can that family be there to support, or do you want your family, for example, your parents, to be grandparents? I don't know, unless it's a strong, healthy family, that they can be both. I would, we never jumped on my parents with that. They never knew anything that we dealt with with our kids. I never did that to them. I would say to my parents, because we had, um, we, I don't know how we ended up starting with teenagers and staying with teenagers. We were, we were foster parents and teenagers the whole time with foster parents. Um, I would say to my parents, I don't expect you to have love feelings for these kids, but I do hope that you'll have love actions for them. And love actions means we recognize birthdays, I'll help you do that. Christmas looks good, I'll help you if you need money to do that. And thirdly, when you're at our house, they're not invisible at the dinner table or around, that you engage in conversation with them. You talk about what's going on, you connect with them. So, I have a friend, Heather Bench, who created this little tool. She's an adopted mom uh, from the Dayton area who adopted two children from China. The first adoption went very, very well. The second adoption um, was just more than the other video videos. We came in all sorts of things. So, in the last year or so, she created what I call the circle of support. It's explained here, and then you've got this little chart here that you can use with family. This is being used all over the place. In fact, my daughter works in hospice, and she does workshops for caregivers of hospice patients, the family members. She has adapted this to work with them. I mean, you can use it almost anything. Um, every person in foster and adoption, the uh, adoptive parent needs a rock. A person who will remain in your life during a difficult time, continue to love you unconditionally, and still invite you over. 
I need to add that. But you, you know, don't you? You know what I'm talking about. Um, they need a person who is the wise person. We all need people in our lives that will speak truth to us. We don't like people to speak truth to us, but we really do need. Like, for example, oh, well, I saw you there in the park with Johnny the other day. You were really working around the country with him? What's going on? Now, she may not want me to come, but she's giving me permission to do that. Um, the third one is a learner, a passenger. Oops. Your group had passenger. I forgot to change it. It should be learner on here. Because we argued back and forth with your little students. And we, we voted learner. So I had to tell them that we changed it back to learner. Um, but a passenger or learner, someone who will learn alongside of you. Like, uh, I would say, look, you know what? I just found this brand new book by Karen Curtis called The Connected Shop. Would you read along with me and so I can bounce my ideas off of you? One of the greatest things I've seen is an adoptive mother's. Um, Saturday breakfast once a month, morning breakfast for adopted moms. There's a woman in, in um, Akron, Ohio that has started that. It's been going on for three years. Halfway, you know, halfway. And um, I can't tell you how many adoptions she's saved because mothers have been able to talk to each other. You know, if you were my worker and I said, I feel like killing Johnny today, you'd call the police. But Laura, as an adopted mom, you would have, I said, I feel like Tom Kelly's right idea. You would say, oh, don't worry, I thought that last week. We'll get over it. It's a whole different conversation here, right? Because I think adopted parents don't even have to finish sentences. Do we? We don't have to finish. I know exactly. This last, next one is actually, I have a beautiful story about this. It's just, it sounds like a small thing, but it was a big thing. Every person needs a helping hand, a person who understands and is where. When you need a break, he steps in to insist. I was training foster parents in Springfield, Ohio, a number of months ago. It was a Saturday. And this family walked in, this couple, and a couple, and she was carrying a box that had the two largest cupcakes I have ever seen in my life. They were awesome. I was, oh my goodness, they're just beautiful. And she said, There's a story with them. So I said, Let me know the story. And she said, um, I've adopted, we've adopted, we're adopted parents, and my six-year-old son, we've had a very hard, hard four or five weeks with, with his behavior and stuff, and my husband and I have had no time together. And my friend heard that we were coming to foster parent training on Saturday as a date. Sometimes, really truthfully, right? Is that Laura, is that your name? I'm sorry. I'm Janice. Sorry. I'm sorry. Janice. Janice. You can understand me. <laughs> As a date, and said she brought these cupcakes over and said, you know what, you're going to be together tomorrow. <clears throat> I want you to have a great day. And no, I'm thinking about you're the cupcakes. Now, what did those cupcakes say to her? I care. I understand. I'm here for you. That young mom took all day to eat her cupcakes. <laughs> it was killing me. It was chocolate with a buttercream frosting on it. Anyway, she will ask me if I wanted to bite, and there was only one left, I didn't know. But, so, the helping hand, and the understanding, I forgot to change this. I always write, see, this is called lots of different PowerPoints. The understanding kind of goes with the helping hand, and the last one is the advocate. And the advocate is a person who really has their back. Let's say if I was supposed advocate, and I'm at church, um, and you guys are talking about what a horrible mom she is, and I'm advocate for their way I want you to know Johnny and Jack are doing so much better since they've been with Dr. Jack. The person has their back. So this is the format here. Excuse the PowerPoint here. I'm not sure exactly how it happens. 
But um, this is a form that we are really seeing great uh, success in. And uh, this has all been translated, I will from Heather, this, this has been translated into Russian and Polish and being used in both those countries. So she was really excited at her, her contribution. Now, the last thing that I want to share with you uh, is the definition of trauma-informed care and how we've integrated the non-essential uh, tasks into this whole process. The goal of trauma-informed services and preparation is to evaluate, educate, and equip trauma-competent parents who understand the impacts of childhood trauma, the unique needs of the survivor child, this is all in the PowerPoint, the impact on the family, um, the man for the relationship, and the services that are needed. But you know what? It begins with you, the worker that's involved in the family. You are that middle circle between the child and the family. God has placed you there. It's a very important role, role at the middle circle. Giving, so the child's need, the child's up here as a family, and they go through you to help me to be the child. You are that very important middle circle. And evaluate yourself. On a scale of one to five, and no one has to answer this question, how would you assess your own knowledge of the impact of trauma on a child's behavior, development, and relationships? If you're one, you say, you know what, I don't know a whole lot about this, then you've got an assignment. Learn all you can about it, read about it. There's what, um, Dr. Bruce Perry, Daniel Hughes, um, our book, Women, Children, Healing Homes, it, it provides a resource for you. Um, because if you don't have number one, you can't do number two, can't communicate with families. You can't integrate this into planning and practice for the kids and families. You cannot help parents evaluate their own impact of trauma. You can't help parents. You can't do any of it. So number one, understanding is really important. Now, these are the um, non-essential skills of trauma-informed preparation, and I have them over here. And what I would like you to do is look into look at your um, handout number three. And I'm going to take just a minute here to step here. Talk a little bit about uh, in about a three to four minute explanation of types of questions. And we're going to look at these questions here. For those of you that do home study questions, and really any kind of assessment, we're wanting to know how someone's going to do something. So we do an assessment on them, right? But I think sometimes we ask the questions in the wrong way. That we ask what we call, I call, theoretical questions. Like, how do you think, you want to be licensed so badly, though, how do you think being a foster parent will impact you and Jay's marriage? You want to be licensed so well, you say, and you'll bring so much closer together. Okay, so we write down on the home study that they feel, you know what I'm talking about? There, we ask theoretical questions, or questions that we ask about how someone is going to do something when they've not had the life experience to really know, but you know what I'm looking for, so you can jump through the hoops so you get me the answer. How do you think, um, Hannah, you'll do with kids who buy and steal? You want to be licensed so badly when you're sick. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you love children who lie still. Those are your favorite kind of kids. So, that's who you met. You love those kind of kids. So all the all the uh, kids in Logan County, we're going to put in your home in Ohio because you said you love children. You have not support So theoretical questions. If we had all questions, all theoretical questions on a home study, what do we have at the end? Would you say what? A lot of theory. A lot of theory. You have a theoretical home study that doesn't work in real life. It won't even work in never and ever way. It just doesn't work. And families or workers are saying, you know what? They said they could do it on the home study, but we've set them up. Now we've asked the question. Another way we ask questions is leading questions. Uh, so you say that your family's all supportive, folks. Oh, yes. Both families all supportive. And this is we. Answer the question in the way we ask it. The third kind is behavioral question, which asks an applicant to discuss an experience he has had. Tell me about a time when or give me an example of how. This is where you no longer have cookie cutter home studies. So instead of asking you, um, Hannah, instead of asking you how you'll do with children who lie and steal, I'm going to say, have you ever had experience being stolen from? You can make it up. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about what that was? Your doorman. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's your next work. Um, what did you do about it? Reported it to the supervisor and How did it feel to you? Now, what I'm going to do, I follow that out, but I tie it to what she might experience as a foster parent. You know what? You may have a, think you have a trusted child that he may steal from you, he may lie, from, lie to you, but I want you to know you have experienced that emotionally so you know what that note um, is about. So hopefully you will be able to remain more emotionally regulated because you've understood that feeling before. I believe it's not so much the events that cause adoption foster care displacement, disruption, as it is the emotional journey and the responsibility of the parents. You know, some parents, um, I had a friend the other day that, uh, she said, let me tell you about, she had an illustration, and she said, I had a friend, <clears throat> I called her, she's an adopting mom, I called her, it was like 8 o'clock in the morning, there was a whole lot of confusion in the background, and I said, do you want me to call you back? Well, she said, oh no, it's just Jamie's truant officer here trying to get him to go to school, all this confusion, she was laughing about it. There was no big deal with her. Now, some families would be a little off the wall with that. Their only emotional response. And so how families respond emotionally to events and to the event is more significant in the research than the actual event, which makes sense. So what we have here is we're rounding the last five minutes here, I think, Linda, right? Three minutes. Three minutes. I can do it. Three minutes. I'm good at three minutes. We have created, these have been created by groups um, in Ohio that have gone through. This is actually a six-hour workshop. We've got a, just that little bit of a um, taste of These are behavioral questions that you can integrate into the home study process that will tap into the parent's life experience around every single one of these essential skills. When you look at these essential skills and think about the world of child welfare, how important these are.
Thank you for joining us today for NACSW's Podcast of the Month featured selection. We hope you found today's session useful and that it will support your efforts to thoughtfully integrate Christian faith and social work practice. We also hope that you will consider participating in additional NACSW's activities and events, including NACSW's upcoming convention in the fall, our quarterly audio conference workshops that we offer at no cost to NACSW members, and which includes free CEUs accredited by the Association of Social Work Boards, our online continuing education program, and access to dozens of archived podcasts from the member section of our website. Also, we invite you to join NACSW's Facebook group or our Facebook fan page. For additional information about these and other NACSW benefits and services, you can go to our website at www.nacsw.org. Thanks again for listening in today to our podcast session today.